Hey guys, this is Cullen, the host of Cauldron, a military history podcast. And tonight I have a very special guest, a friend of mine named Brett from the Whiskey Tango podcast is joining to talk about the Battle of Ipsus. And if you don't know anything about Ipsus, it is the direct aftermath of Alexander the Great's demise and the breaking up of his uh, fairly spectacular but short-lived empire into a bunch of smaller kingdoms empires regional powers um and ipsis is really interesting and brett's going to tell us why but before he does i want to kind of invite him in to introduce himself and talk about how he got into military history so brett thank you for joining us um this has been a kind of a a a long romance between the two of us i think maybe two two three years now we've been messaging back and forth on instagram um i'm a big fan of the whiskey tango podcast for a number of reasons that we'll get to later but the key reason is that it is a it's a clear case of a bunch of friends getting together to talk about nothing and i think that's a uh, a wonderful listen so Brett, tell us about yourself, tell us about your show, and then if you could, give us a little insight into how you got into military history, ancient history, and in particular, why you picked the Battle of Ipsus to bring to us today. Absolutely, Colin. Thank you very much for having me on. I've been such a huge fan of your show since forever. I I found, I remember finding out about you because I was just scrolling through the search screen Instagram the Warhammer at somebody's head and they had a helmet and my cop my caption was uh, hold still you've got a fly on you or something it was something like that and ever and then you responded with laughing and then I just was hooked and I, I immediately had to go listen to your show and as soon as I heard your voice I'm like this guy just sounds like he knows what he's talking about I got to get right into it and so yeah I've been listening religiously since uh, since I found out about you and uh yeah the voice is the hook but it's all a facade i don't know what the hell i'm talking about <laughs> i i can i know exactly what that's all about uh that's <laughs> great lead into what whiskey tango is all about literally it's um <laughs> it's myself uh, my buddy denzel and my buddy dave we kind of re- met randomly through acquaintances like through mutual acquaintances and before we knew it we realized that we had a connection so we're like, yeah let's sit down and record a podcast and we were like what are we gonna do it about it's like well what do we know like well we don't know anything so it became Seinfeld for podcasts where it's it's mostly we we describe it as a pop culture podcast uh that focuses mostly on comedy and alcohol and that's pretty much that sounds about right I will say this though that you guys tend to come away with a gem or two in every episode where I'm like, you know what? That's actually a good way of thinking about that. Or that's, uh, that's something I wouldn't have seen had I just looked at it from the bird's eye point of view. I, I feel like I'm part of your group of friends, which I think is a really good thing for a show like that to be able to do. Uh, You don't have that very often. and, And especially with podcasts, it's great to feel like you're part of the show. Um, So I, I, again, I I think at the end, we'll talk a little bit more about Whiskey Tango, um, but I think it's a great show. If you can find it, where can, uh, where can they find it if they're looking for it? 
yeah, uh, YouTube is a big one. Just Whiskey Tango Podcast on YouTube, or you can go on to any of the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts or uh, Spotify. Those are the two most common ones. But I usually end up rewatching it and cringing at myself on YouTube. It's my, my most... Uh, well, first off, I will tell you, if you do go and look for it and you do enjoy Whiskey Tango podcast, or even if you don't, be a friend to both of our shows. Go rate, review, and subscribe, regardless of whether or not you listen. Hopefully you do, but do that anyways. And um, as to listening to your own show, I don't. I can't listen to my own voice. I cannot do it. I do it at work, but I don't have the headphones on. So I'm just listening for like audio glitches. But man, it is. Whew, it's, a, it's a tough thing to, to hear your own voice. Oh, I know. I, I, I say that more often than not. I tr like the only reason why I listen back to it is for one, it's I want to make sure that I didn't say anything I'm going to regret later. <laughs> and and two, it's just it's uh, I want to basically I'm judging it. I'm judging it and trying to see what I can do. Like for instance, when I first started on the podcast, I barely spoke at all. And then I, I kept listening. I'm like, I didn't really say anything. I didn't have anything to say there. And listening to it made me, I don't know, not really gave me confidence to speak up, but just kind of gave me the drive really to, to, to become more, not aggressive, just getting my points out there instead of just sitting there listening well i definitely in a show like that i feel like you gotta kind of grow into your space and you know like liquid yeah. you take the form of whatever you're in you know you got to figure out where the other parts are taking up space and then fill in around them where you can um and i think yeah. you guys do that great it, it really is a fun show again whiskey tango podcast find that on whatever platform you listen to podcasts or on youtube um can't recommend it enough but this is a military history podcast not a seinfeld drinking podcast so <laughs> let's get straight to the military history how did you get into military history why and why particularly have you brought us the battle of ipsis okay so basically i got into history because my grandfather came straight from scotland and he would always tell me stories about just growing up in wartime, wartime Scotland. And he just would have all kinds of just anecdotes and he would talk about history and he'd have history books everywhere. And he really was the one that, uh, that drove me into that and got me excited about it. And I just started picking up books and reading and watching movies and getting into it, like whatever I could devour for history, I would, I would take it in and, just absorb the information. The wife says I'm like a walking encyclopedia when it comes to history. I don't think I'm that uh, spectacular at it, but she, whenever she has a question, even remotely related to history. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, whenever I, uh, she has something even remotely related to history, she'll ask me. And if I don't know, I will spend the next hour just on Wikipedia or wherever I can find sources to learn about it. So it, it's, uh, definitely one of the most fascinating parts but the thing that really got me into this period of time was I've always been a fan of Alexander the Great I've read a, quite a few books related to him but what annoyed me was high school and, and high school history university history they would they would go Alexander Rome and I, I never had any idea about what happened in between so I just figured 
his uh, empire fell apart and that was it. I had no real idea that there was so much interesting events that took place after his death. So one day I just decided I was going to read up on the dyadic eye or diadochi or everything. Okay, so hold on. I'm going to put a pin on it. How do you pronounce it? Yeah. And then I'm going to pronounce it the same way you do through the rest of this episode because you hear it four (laughs) different ways and it gets confusing as shit. So instead, let's pronounce it together. What do you say? Diotica is how we're going to say it throughout. And if that's wrong, I'm sure you'll let us know. But (laughs) that's how we're going to say it. Diotica. Yeah. That was actually the first time I ever heard it pronounced was Diotica. And that's always how it's been. That's how we'll do it. And then I'll listen. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll listen to it on, say, Kings and Generals or something on YouTube. Or some or history marsh or whatever, and they'll pronounce it a completely yep. different way, and it just sounds foreign to my ears that way. But uh, yeah, uh, but uh, the reason why Ipsis was uh, Antigonus the One-Eyed, I see a lot of myself in him. The the uh, the just like loves like I love combat sports, loves to fight, loves to drink, loves to eat, all things that I absolutely love doing. And he and loved a good joke. I think that was one of the biggest things because I love telling jokes and he loved dirty jokes. And it just like I it just I identified a lot with him as a man as a man. And I was like, well, what's his biggest like what's the one defining moment? And unfortunately, it just happened to be his last. Yeah, Ipsis is um as we'll see as we move forward, it is kind of his um defining moment in a weird way because he lived mm-hmm. such a huge life to have the defining moment be kind of the end of all of it is uh unfortunate or maybe it's the way it's supposed to be i mean that could if you're a greek philosopher i can see you you know framing it in a way that this is the ultimate way to go out is on your own terms and in your own fashion uh as far as uh, the people involved here the uh, Antigonus, the one-eyed, he's the only one that was actually part of Alexander's bodyguard at this point in time, right? Okay, yes. so he's the only one who we can directly draw to Alexander. And maybe there is some, and, and I'm going to throw, this is the first time in a long time that I've had someone to talk to about this. Usually I'm just kind of speaking into the void. Uh, And so I don't often get to exercise the part of my brain of like, oh, here's an idea. As we talk, it's forming. Usually I'm just trying to get as much of the facts out there as quickly as possible. Um, Would you say in your estimation? Yeah. Is part of the, I mean, it's well known. Alexander and his, his bodyguards, his direct group were the joke making heavy drinking gallivanting and cavorting types is that is that antigonus the one eye is this part of that you know a a hangover that's just gone on for 20 years or was he always like this is there any idea of that in the sources is (laughs) or is it just something that we can kind of infer well the I've just uh, i made a couple of notes here so apologize if i'm looking down at them every now and then no 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 but uh they can't see you. That's right. You're right. So, um, uh, like Lysimachus, who is involved in this as well, he did. He was he was also a member of Alexander's bodyguard as well. 
less known for uh, being that kind of the real party animal. Like Antigonus was, while he wasn't so much involved, like he spent most of his time closer to mainland Greece when Alexander was off making his big conquests. Uh, once again, I, I don't proclaim to be an expert on any of this. It's just stuff that I've been kind of picking up. Uh, like he, Antigonus, there was, he's first mentioned as part of like Philip's entourage. Very like not in the upper echelon. He is just, he was at the siege of, uh, he lost, where he lost his eye at uh, Perenthios. I might be pronouncing that wrong. And three, uh, 340 BC. And that's where he took his arrow to the eye and, Basically, like, uh, just in general, just to go back to your original point, the the Macedonians, they loved, like, especially Alexander's close con contemporaries, they loved to drink, they loved to party. That was probably one of the few things that Alexander's movie really drove home was... Maybe the only the thing that Yeah, got maybe right the only, exactly. There was the Gaugamela, that's supposed to, there you go. That's, but yeah, they, they loved the party. And I mean... Well, b before we get too far ahead... Uh, because I do want to get us to kind of a idea of where Ipsis sits. Uh, Alexander, we all know if you're listening to this podcast, then you know some tangentially uh, you understand where Alexander the Great sits. He goes about, he dismantles the Persian Empire. Uh, he takes Macedonia now or Macedon or Macedonia, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he he builds upon what his father, Philip, actually built, and he enlarges that. I think there's a really good argument. It's one of the rare times where I think revisionist history is hitting it right nail on the head, where I think the shine or the luster of Alexander has kind of been a little dimmed over the last 20 years as people start to recognize, oh, well, Philip actually kind of created the circumstances and then the brilliance of alexander is hard to negate but he was kind of riding on a you know a fairly good wave of 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 technological strategic and tactical innovation that his father kind of put in place now i don't know if i go the full length that some revisionist histories uh, historians go where they say it's all because of philip and alexander just you know, happen to be in the right time and the right place. I still think you have to, You first off, you have to fight the three great battles against the Persian Empire. Also, you have Alexander deciding to uh, dismantle the Persian Navy in a incredibly effective way mm -hmm. without actually um, fighting a naval battle. It's It's one of the rare instances where you have a naval war fought entirely on land um, and incredibly effectively. So I, I don't want to take any credit away from Alexander that he should get. He's still the great. Let's all agree yeah. on that. But he takes all this, he gets himself all the way to yeah, India yeah. and then ends up dying. I think it's famously at what, 32 or 33? I don't, or I I don't remember. I want to say 32, but I could be wrong. I think that's right. The only reason I remember is because I always come back to Caesar crying or weeping about how he was 52 and had not achieved or 42 and not achieved the same amount. Yeah. Um, so he's dead. Now what happens? And I think this is this is what really this is the soap opera of 
the ancient world. Like this is the most dramatic you're going to see in the ancient world, at least to me, where you have one guy stealing Alexander's body in the, you know, in the dark <laughs> of night. Uh, one guy running back to Greece to make sure that his mom and his family is like under guard. Explain to us what happens after Alexander dies. Well, you've, you've basically got it started. Like you've, you've already got the main point started. Like Ptolemy steals Alexander's body. The basically, well, nobody really knows what Alexander said before he died, but the most common theory is that they, they asked him, who is to be your successor? And he says, my, my empire will go to the strongest. Now, and, do you know, before you go on, do you think that actually happened? Or is that no, one of these brilliant no. historians adding words into his mouth? I think that's just that because they had like it sets up the following few years so brilliantly. I hope fact, that's what I, he said, though. I love that. Me I think too. It's so, me too. I mean, it's it's cool. Yeah. So, so basically, like the empire has, has collapsed into it's like uh, who's it? You got uh, Antigonus, you've got Cassander, Lysimachus, uh, Seleucus, Ptolemy. You've got all these guys basically carving out their own little piece of alexander's empire and before uh, i'm got, sorry i'm going to interrupt again but who yeah. who is where if you could draw a map okay. for us who's got where we know okay, ptolemy so has egypt right yeah ptolemy's got egypt uh seleucus has the most eastern provinces india mesopotamia uh cassander i believe has like what is like where modern macedon is like that northern greece area uh lysimachus i believe is more thrace like kind of even more north than that uh antigonus has uh, asia minor so modern day so like, turkey to like syria turkey, syria yeah exactly and that's basically <clears throat> where we are right now those are kind of the biggest factions i hope i'm not forgetting anybody but antigonus is he basically didn't really have like there's not too much mentioned of him during alexander's time he like uh let's see like he lost his eye uh, it talks about how he was very much a powerful person like he was a force to be reckoned with but really didn't get into the conquest part of it it wasn't until after he died or later on into his legacy that all of a sudden he takes a main stage and becomes this powerful figure this powerful general and he has a son now, Antigonus, while loved dirty jokes, loved to drink, loved the party, was famously um, monogamous. Had <laughs> his one wife and had his one son. And then he loved to drink and everything, but that was, he just said, uh, no, that's, he wasn't that kind of guy. Whereas Demetrius, his son, was the exact opposite. Loved to drink, loved the party, but was also, like, not, not the nicest person. He, uh... He actually ended up getting a young man killed because he was attempting to force himself upon him. And the young man said no, and then eventually killed himself in a vat of boiling water. Interesting. So that's, yeah. So, so there's an interesting parallel there uh, to Philip, Alexander's father. Um, I think famously he was assassinated by a young uh kind of up and coming the son of a noble who was going to be in the retinue or the guard 
and who had some kind of relationship with Philip and then was spurned. And as his kind of, you know, the spurned lover's reaction was to kill the guy who he had thought he was in love with. It's, it's weird that you see echoes, you know, it's a famous um, Mark Twain thing. History doesn't repeat itself, but it, it echoes and, or absolutely there's uh, the, it's anyhow, go on. I'm sorry. I'm, I keep interrupting. No, that's okay. But. That's okay. Uh, so basically like the, there's already been a couple of wars of the dyadica leading up to this where like, uh, like they tried to attack Ptolemy. There's been a few attempts by Antigonus or whomever to take Ptolemy's territory. Cause I mean, it's Egypt. Everyone's always fought over Egypt because of the Nile and the, the grain that comes out of there was very important to supplying your army. So everybody wanted that. But Ptolemy, I've never really thought he was that amazing of a general. He was just very lucky. He had a couple of great, he, he did have some victories under his belt, but the fact that his, just the land that he had, the, the attempts to get over the major rivers had caused the demise of so many armies. Like Demetrius is pushed back at his borders a few times. Like he's, that being said, he was the one that lasted. Like hit, like even Seleucus, who came out on top of the Diotikai, he still did not. His empire didn't outlast the Rome, the start of the Romans. Like they, they didn't last after that. Whereas Ptolemy lasted up until the time of Cleopatra. So his uh, his line really. So I would wonder if that is uh, a couple of things where you have, like you were saying, the ability to trade land or you know space for time. Like you see the Russians do over and over throughout history is, mm-hmm. well, Ptolemy can just fall back further and further and further into the Egyptian hinterland or, you know, keep falling back until eventually the his opponent loses steam or logistically falls apart. Mm-hmm. Also, I mean, you have the wealth of Egypt, so he's able oh, to yeah. constantly be, you know, rearming, buying new mercenary armies, filling his muster out. It's it's interesting, especially with the Ptolemaic Empire. Like, the, what are they really built on? It seems like you know, it seems like sand, and I hate that. That's such an on the nose reference, but mm-hmm. it doesn't. It's not as sturdy as the Seleucid or or some of these others might be militarily, but they definitely, to your point, they last quite a bit longer than anybody else on the board. Well, I think a part of that as well is the fact that they got along so well with the local population, like the Egyptians and like, they were one of the few empires that really tried to kind of meld the people together. Like, mind you, Cleopatra was the first ruler to actually speak Egyptian. Okay, as well so as Greek. I, I appreciate you saying that because I was just about to say like, they, they, how did they do that? Because we know Thebes is famously like a walled city and the, mm-hmm. the royal court was like a a country unto itself made up almost entirely of Greeks and Greek speakers yeah. and Cleopatra is not an Egyptian name it is a Greek name very Greek name. Uh, like one of the oldest Greek names and the fact mm-hmm. that we automatically assume it's Egyptian is simply because it's you know Cleopatra of Egypt Cleopatra. but uh, of the Ptolemaic line but um so how so explain that a little bit to me and then once you're done with that if you could set the time because i think one of the most confusing things like you were saying about high school earlier is like it's alexander the great and then rome is here 
Yeah. And this is that weird time where you have actually Alexander's, you know, empire falling apart or par- partitioning off. And you have Rome kind of mm-hmm. beginning and, and kind of going through the growing pains of early adulthood. So if you could hit me with that info about Egypt and the Ptolemies and then go into kind of the timeline, that would be, I think, helpful yeah. for me and the audience. Absolutely. So, okay. So basically to, for the Ptolemy, uh, the Ptolemaic empire, the, the minor administrative positions, a lot of them went to locals because they, they wanted that connection. Whereas the so upper smart. echelon of the ruling class was Greek, but the fact they knew that to keep the population in line, you need to have a connection with them. So they just said, okay, when, uh, I don't know if it was Alexander or Ptolemy that did this, but yeah, they, they put locals in charge of minor administrative parts and that that's what worked. They kept, they held that empire until, until Rome got there. And I mean, that says something, the fact that they can hang on to that territory for so long. I'm going to pick your brain here just yeah. because I, I'm, in, I'm intrigued by that line of thought. Why does every conquering force or country or nation, why don't they do that? It seems like a huge misstep every time you see it where the Romans famously would conquer and then be like, but we don't want to do anything. You govern your own shit as long as the taxes come in and the roads are kept up you do whatever you want yep why does why doesn't every country conquering do that it just seems like a huge missed opportunity i i'm guess i'm like if i were just to take a hazard to guess at it i would just say that they view themselves as coming from a position of strength and they want to project that and they don't feel that letting their own people govern them is that show of strength I, I could be entirely wrong. No, right? no. I'm I mean, sure there's some philosophers out there. With the, I would think that's, I, I think you're spot on. I just, it seems like they, Ptolemy figured this out or Alexander, whoever it was this long ago. And yet you still see that now. Like I'm assuming in the Eastern Ukraine, whenever the agreed upon settlement goes down, I'm not sure that the Russians are going to let, you know, native ukrainians have the power of whatever partitioned government they have so it just seems like a missed whatever anyhow give us the but i will or or, i'm sorry well i got one more thing to add to that though uh the i want to say it was the acumenid persians but i could be wrong had the same idea they absolutely did you're 100 yeah so they they basically like the greek city states that they took over in uh, asia minor there they led Greeks, like a, a puppet, of course, but still, it was a Greek person ruling over these city-states. So they had that idea. So, I mean, I, I, that could be a lesson learned. Yeah, I mean, to back that up, there's um, documentation or, or records of the, the acmented court being like, when the Greek city started to revolt, mm-hmm. then the, the court at Susa, whatever, was basically like, what the hell? We, we, we're letting these guys do everything they want. We're only, you know, we're just collecting taxes. They can govern and have their own religion and everything. We're not trying to do anything. And, or, you know, paraphrasing there. And so it was a surprise to them when the Greeks were like, oh, we don't want this anymore. And they probably weren't doing it for any reason other than, well, we don't want to pay this much in taxes. Like, likely, yeah. We'd, we'd rather pay less. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, uh, Athens paid the price for trying to rile up the Greeks over there. And so, and who is it? Rhodes? Was it Rhodes the other one of the major ones that stirred up trouble with the... Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So they all, they paid a hefty price for that. They sure did. All right. So I'm sorry. I've sidetracked us like <laughs> 15 times in the first half an hour here. I don't want good. this to be a four hour marathon for you. Uh, what is the timeline? Where are we at in in his, history at this moment okay so basically we're at uh it's 308 bc it's the fourth war between the diatokai powers uh basically uh, ptolemy is expanding his navy uh antigonus is sending off demetrius to retake greece ptolemy and i think it was uh, seleucus they basically consolidated a bunch of power in greece so Antigonus, which was typically a very Antigonid area, but they had come in, they'd conquered it. They'd collapsed all these cities, taken over, set up shop there. So Antigonus sends his son Demetrius. Uh, basically, the, the siege of Rhodes had just failed, like building the world's biggest battering ram, like the world's biggest battering ram, and they had to abandon it. And it, all the copper and stone and wood that came from this battering ram became the Colossus of Rhodes. Really? So just, uh, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, it's super neat. Like this thing, I can't remember. It was called the um, the city, the city or city taker, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Fancy Greek name. Any specs on that? Like any idea of how much? Uh, Obviously, it's all speculation, but yeah it was uh, it basically it, it took it took them like a week to build this like probably longer than that it took, probably took like a month to build this thing it was a huge undertaking and they had to abandon it without even really using it like it should have it should have taken the city of Rhodes. but the fact was they just they didn't have when they were able to breach the outer wall of Rhodes, the army fell back into another wall and like it's gonna take us another week to get over the second wall and by that point in time, Greece had fallen, and Antigonus says, sends a missive to him, says, get back to Greece. We need to go there. We've lost our base of support there. So uh, Demetrius basically packs up all his troops and leaves his giant city-taking thing there and flees to, and, and takes his, goes over to mainland Greece. So basically, they just set uh, just to set the, set it up there. This is where they start to realize that like Ptolemy is sent packing, so Seleucus they're gone. Greece is retaken to the Antigonids, and now um, uh, Lysimachus, I want to say, or no, sorry, Seleucus, uh, sorry, Seleucus is in the he's fighting a losing war in India at this point, so he is off there getting his ass kicked realizing that he is now stuck he needs he's got he's it's either make peace or his whole army's gonna be wiped out so part of the agreement between uh seleucus and the um, the indian government there the uh the, i can't remember what the king's name was it's something him, uh marathan empire something, something like that yeah but it doesn't matter go on i'm sorry he, gives, yeah, so he, yep. he gives as part of the agreement he gives up a bunch of the territory all the territorial gains in india that alexander made those are gone in exchange though it, so it's a kind of a doesn't seem like a completely losing game he's given 70 war elephants 
And so then Seleucus takes these war elephants and starts heading back. He receives a message from Cassander saying, hey, we're losing. Antigonus has turned down our offer for peace, says the only way that we're going to have an end to the hostilities is if Cassander and Lysimachus give up all of their territories to Antigonus. So now uh, Seleucus is, is on his way back to directly confront the Antigonids. And he goes right into Asia Minor and starts raiding. Now we've got Demetrius in Greece. He is now he has basically driven Cassander out, has reestablished himself, has replenished his ranks because all the Macedonians that Cassander had brought under his wing desert him and go to Demetrius instead. Now Demetrius takes, he pushes them right out with very little effort, like just city after city just kind of comes to his banner afterwards. And now he gets a message from his father saying, hey, we're about to be enveloped. I need you here. So Demetrius packs up all his troops out of Greece, goes back to Asia Minor. And that's pretty much where the battle's about to start. So, okay, so he's Antigonus the one-eyed, right, is Demetrius' yep. father. And he says, we yep. need you here. So he pulls him out of Greece where he's kind of going on a rampage you know, building up a lot of, of local support and securing the Antigonid flank in the West. Correct. Seleucus has come back from his campaigning in India and is yep. threatening the Antigonid flank on the East. So right. Antigonid, uh, Antigonus, the one eye says, you need to come back and support us. Where is that support going to be, uh, brought to where is ipsus where does this this major event in the soap opera that is uh, the time of our lives post alexander if it were a show uh where is this going to happen okay so basically ipsus is it's in asia minor it's pretty close to the bosphorus not quite there it's uh, pretty close i mean looking at it from looking at it from a bird's eye view but uh, it's uh, hard to say, uh, like south of Azerbaijan, like kind of that area. It's hard to, it's, uh, without a map in front of me, it's hard yeah. to really pinpoint. But it, it's in that basic area there. And uh, they are, it's getting to the point where you've got Cassander and you've got Seleucus and uh, Seleucus and Lysimachus, they're all converging on this one point of Ipsus. It's a small town, it's just, or that's like a small city that's just, a, just not, it's nothing really, there's nothing really exciting about it. It's not a, not a super historical thing outside of this battle here. I haven't really seen much about it outside of this, but they're all converging at this point. So and now the reason it's important isn't that it holds some, you know, it's not Constantinople or, uh, it's not holding some key geographical position. The reason it's important is that this is where the army of Antigonus is and the allies against him are yeah. maneuvering on that position. Wherever he is, that's where they're going to go. Absolutely. It's just, that's all it is. It's just a meeting point of these armies. They, that is where they're going to converge. Uh, it just so happens like the, uh, the, yeah, the, the, uh, Seleucid army is going to be meeting up with his allies to get the Antigonids 
trapped in one specific location for this specific battle. And Antigonus is just waiting for his son to arrive, and which he does. Like I, when I first heard the story, I and I'd heard that about the outcome. I thought that uh, and uh, Demetrius did not make it in time, but they did. They actually did. They were able to meet up. All the allies on either side meet up, and they face off each other again at that Ipsis. And I mean, I don't know, like, do you want us to start delving into the battle now, or do you want us to talk more about the armies? Yeah, I mean, so actually, before we get into the the blow-by-blow, blow, if you could just give us a sense of, and obviously, as I say in every episode before the modern time, numbers are very, very up for grabs. You know, whatever they say they were, they could be that, they could be more, they're most likely less by a lot who how many men on each side and where do we stand in terms of like uh disposition infantry heavy cavalry heavy um what what sense do we have there okay so the antagonid army has uh you've got 70,000 troops and mercenaries with uh 50,000 cavalry on the right flank and then five, or sorry, 5,000 cavalry on the right flank and 5,000 cavalry on the left. Uh, the, the right flank of the Antigonid army is led by Demetrius and his trusted uh, general Fergus. Fergus? I don't know. My writing is horrible. Uh, it, it, it might be fierce, but I do, it's not the fierce that everybody thinks. <laughs> and uh, Lysimex's army has 64,000 infantry and mercenaries, 75. Uh, 7,500 cavalry on the right and the same amount on the left. And then they also have the elephants, which of course is what's going to literally cause like that is what's going to cause the biggest, it's going to have the biggest impact, which whenever I like outside of Hannibal with his elephants, I don't really see a lot of like, you, you get the Carthaginian battle where the elephant, uh, like when they're taking this, when they're taking it to Carthage, um, Zama. I can't think of uh, the big victory. Zama. Rome. Zama. Thank you. Uh, the elephants at that point were kind of, the Romans had their fill of them. They already knew how to handle them. And elephants didn't seem to be, they figured out kind of how to, how to deal with them. Yeah. Famously, Scipio created lines within his infantry to channel the elephants and they also realized small tricks like noises and smells that the elephants really didn't like um and i think that interestingly hannibal's elephants were only really impactful in the sense that he brought them across the alps exactly. they were more propaganda than they were much of any the first i think uh, the battle of the trabia you see them have an impact because they're unique. You know, you have mm -hmm. Roman infantry for the first time facing them. Um, but outside of that, they don't, I don't, you don't see them play a huge role, but in yeah. these wars in particular, and, and I think I, I, you know, if you have a, a willingness or an ability to speak on it a little bit, I think what's interesting about these wars, the, the wars of the successors is that you have armies built on the same mold like they are all not only are they made up of the same types of units and you have 
war elephants everybody has them on both sides even in this battle right i think mm-hmm. um the allies have a significantly larger amount of them i think like four, yes. 400 plus and the uh antignids have like 70 to 175 okay yeah. so so they have the same types of units they have the same types of tactics how how does this how do the elephants play a significant role if you just assume like if i have the uh, maxim gun and they have not you know the famous saying uh no matter what happens we have the maxim gun and they have not um if you both have the maxim gun then you kind of know how to fight with and against the maxim gun the elephant in this instance is that how do the the greek successor armies deal with that yeah before i go any further i did i realized that uh, i had given the wrong amount of elephants to the wrong side of the army it was the antagonists that had the 75 elephants okay yep. uh yeah so um so basically like yeah you've got you've got your your both sides have your elephants but here's the interesting thing like the the macedonian phalanx is one of the most interesting things because when everybody thinks of the greek phalanx they think of the the large shield, like the big uh, bronze shield and the bronze cuirass and full of bronze, very heavy, very slow moving. Whereas Alex, well, I shouldn't say Alexander, this is Philip. (laughs) Philip took, uh, he extended the length of the spear, took away the bronze armor, gave them a tiny light shield and basically had them wearing almost like an ancient, um, what's that padding they wore in the Middle Ages? Um, Oh yeah. Um, Gambeson. It's almost like a Gambeson. So it's uh, basically you've got something that's lighter, faster, more maneuverable. Uh, they still have a helmet. Yeah, the light shield, the the pelte. Even uh, the helmet, green. even the helmet was small, right? I mean, it was yeah, just... it was all smaller, it was all lighter. But the sarissa was the big advantage, like that long spear. Give us an idea. Strike. So the sarissa, the, the hoplite spear was what, like eight to eleven feet long, and the sarissa is what, like. 17 17 i think 17 or 18 yeah That's... like it's a long it's a big difference and in warfare where you're literally pushing against another side he who strikes first strikes best like you are it's it's like when like in boxing if you can land the first blow eight times out of ten you're winning the fight that's uh, it's an old it's I, I don't know how much you can really quantify that, but that's what my coach always does. Yeah, and it's tone setting. You're setting the tone, and you're setting the the momentum and the pace of the fight. Yes. And if you have the ability, I think the biggest thing about the the hoplite of of Philip and Alexander, and then the successor, is that you're able to bring to bear a lot more weight more immediately than anybody else i mean if you can absolutely you know if the if if the old hoplite phalanx is only two spears deep and then the new one is four spear lengths you're Mm -hmm. able to bring a lot more weight so so both sides at at ipsis are bringing that form you know into conflict with each other how does it break down how does that fighting look so well I think the biggest thing for that is you've got it's it's shaping up to be an infantry battle like you've got you've got two large bodies of infantry but then you've always got which always amazes me surprises people in like ancient generals you've got the flanking cavalry 
And that for whatever reason, that always manages to surprise generals or like the, the cavalry hiding in the wings in a, uh, over a, under a small hill or like behind a couple of trees. Like nobody ever suspects that. And, but uh, anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. And, and before we uh, get in, because I think it does play a part. I think you're a hundred percent right in bringing that aspect of this up is Alexander kind of set the standard where you have this infantry fight, but that's not really the winning blow. The phalanx is there to hold your enemy in place and stretch them and stretch them and continuously stretch them and keep them pinned. And then he usually takes a cavalry force on the right-hand side, on the right flank, and drives it home into a weak point that has been kind of formed by the the continuous fight with the the phalanx and the infantry like there's the most famous version is at galgamela arabella where the infantry continuously stretches the much larger enemy and then there's a weak spot that alexander drives his cavalry through like a wedge and breaks them and i think not only every successor general but i'm pretty sure every general has been trying to either recreate Galgamela or can I ever since they're oh, always absolutely. on the, the search for that. Is that something we see here? Is there a similar, it, it becomes more difficult when both sides are doing the same thing. It becomes the revolving door of, well, we build up a ton of cavalry on our right flank on both sides and mm-hmm. we both charge. And then, you know, if everybody's doing that, then, You've just kind of created this axis which cavalry is moving around. For it, it basically like the this not only does it end up with the identical phalanxes com- like clashing, but you've also got identical cavalry clashing. The only thing is, is that uh, the the oh now I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, I'm sorry. Like, you just tell the story the way you've got it in your head, and okay. I'll follow along because I keep uh, throwing you off. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Let me just get to uh, let me get to my timeline here. Yeah, so basically the battle starts with your elephant charge. Like that's the elephant charge is going straight ahead, and they want to break up that infantry. That is that you got a wall of men coming towards you, but you've got the ancient equivalent of a tank. I know that's one of the historians' uh, cliches. The, the ancient version of the tank. If it, it works, it works. There. Exactly. Uh, so you've got tusk bladed, probably had towers on them for infantry or say for, uh, for light troops on there or guys with spears charging at this wall of infantry. Now, at the same time, you've got Antigonus's right flank. So Demetrius and, and Furus, they are now charging towards the... Uh, Lysimachus and they're they're charging their head on. They completely catch them by surprise, like the or well, that's what it's presented as because the other the opposite side, Lysimachus side, his cavalry is just beat. They got they the two sides of the cavalry they come together. The the Antigonids have the upper hand and they rout the cavalry completely. But as so happens in ancient battles, blood is up. They are charging. Lysimachus' cavalry on that side is gone. They completely fled the field. Demetrius is hunting at this point. 
and he has gone after them completely. Now what happens, now you've got exposed. Like you've now left and taken this aside, exposed. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what happened with the elephants at this point. I'm assuming they dealt with them like they, as I said, these guys have dealt with elephants before. You've got your light infantry at the front. You've got your, your bowmen, your slingers. They probably took care of a lot of the elephants because, I mean, they can just run around and shoot the drivers out or scare the elephants using the, the classic ways of dealing with them. Uh, now you've got <clears throat> the Antigonid infantry in the center. They start pushing back. It's looking really good for antagonists at this point. He's pushing back, pushing back, pushing back. But the thing was... You've got a large body of cavalry that is just victorious cavalry that may be far gone, but they're still victorious and they're still a danger to your flank. Whereas, but Seleucus, he says, okay, well, they're coming back and we have a reserve of elephants. So he waits, basically letting his troops back up, back up, knowing that he's got this flanking cavalry coming back. So he takes his elephants and he pushes them right into Demetrius's way. So literally blocked his path with war elephants. So they, the entire, entire cavalry regiment is completely stuck there. They cannot go forward. They have to fight their way around. They have to, have to go around or try and fight their way through. Horses don't like elephants. They just naturally don't. So they had to go take the long way around all these elephants to get at the Seleuc uh, get at Seleucus's back. So at the time when uh, the elephants were blocking the cavalry, the left side of Seleucus's army, his cavalry over there, they charge the right Antigonid flank. So they basically crash right into the phalanx, and they're using arrows, missiles, whatever they can. So all this reserve cavalry that hadn't charged yet is now crashing into the side of the phalanx. And they just start crumbling. And Antigonus is. Oh, Can I pause ahead. you there? So, yeah. The reason I think that, or, you know, something important to point out there is what you brought up earlier is that the danger that Philip had kind of made this deal with the devil, a trade of we're going to get rid of the bronze plating and the armor and the shields and all this stuff. And we're going to trade that for maneuverability and speed in tactical situations. But what we see here, according to what you're saying and, and what the historians or, you know, the records have shown is that at this point at Ipsus, that becomes, you know, an Achilles heel moment of it's all well and good if you're able to face forward and face the enemy. But if a cavalry unit is able to completely take you in the flank and not give you the amount of time needed to you know do an about face and and form up what does that look like in your mind in your imagination you know the show sometimes i like to dive into the you know almost historical fiction aspect of like what would it look like to be on the ground because to me this is the interesting part of of history is like where how would it look to see this? And how do you see this looking in your mind's eye? Uh, Seleucid is pulling his cavalry around and it's almost like I see it as like two boxes facing each other. And then all of a sudden from mm -hmm. out behind one box is just this, you know, limitless 
hundreds and hundreds of of cavalry men coming around and slamming into the other box is is it a a hot butter through knife kind of thing or is it a melee that is really um a hard fought thing like are we talking about immediate destruction or uh, a slow attritional thing well this is this is where it gets to be like a classic greek tragedy you have Antigonus, who at this point is, I think, 78 years old. Has to be. Like, oh, yeah. And his son is, he, he knows this son has been victorious. He knows, he knows in his head, his son is coming back to save him. He knows this. So he just said, like, his troops, he's got troops that are falling back. Some of the phalanx is falling apart and fleeing the field. He sees the, like, he watches the cavalry come around the back. Like he, he watches the whole thing unfold and then he's like, he gets in there. He is in the fighting. This is a 78 year old man, one eyed who has fought his entire life and has, he is not ready to give up. And he, like his generals are saying like, they already know this is over. Everyone knows this is over except for him. He is just, he refuses to give up hope that Demetrius is going to be right around the corner. And you watch the, the infantry in the center they are so focused. A phalanx is so focused on one mission. That is to push that side and take as many of them down and then kill a lot of them as they're running away. So that's what you have been bred and trained for. That is your life. You are going to push that other army off the field. Now you all of a sudden, you feel, you hear whipping by. You hear, something's coming by you because you've got an entire army of lightly armed cavalry bows, arrows, slings. You've got spears too, but they also know that they can sit there right at the side and fire right into you, no problem. And all of a sudden you realize that your gambeson is no longer going to provide you with the protection you need. And all of a sudden you see guys around you just collapsing from arrows, arrow fire, spears, javelins, uh, sling stones like the the other like you are it's getting to the point where people are dropping like flies it's not the big charge that people are expecting it is now they are staying out of the way and they know they can just fire arrows because the other cavalry that's not coming it is that is not coming whatsoever the boat like all the cavalry on taking this aside is either tied up somewhere or they're gone off the field but now you have an entire reserve unit basically peppering you with with ranged weapons and before you know it people are panicking the panic sets in the guys around you have bailed they are gone they have fled they're starting to peel away they're fleeing but your general seeing this rushes in and he is in the middle of combat and trying to raise morale and keep people from fleeing assuring their troops that that demetrius is around the corner when in reality He's not even close. And then in the end, uh, Antigonus takes a spear right to the chest and drops dead in the field. I love how you set that up as a Greek tragedy because you can almost see, you know, this one-eyed guy, he's seeing everything unfold and he can see the dust cloud in the distance of his son's, you know, unit. And he can kind of track it and just be like look at the horizon they are coming they're coming fight a little bit longer a little bit longer and the whole time it's just moving farther and farther away as it tries to get around the elephant line um yeah 
it's such a dramatic and you know i mean powerful powerful image you know almost not almost but very cinematic so as we know in most combat in history especially in the age of of um, steel or iron weapons before gunfire uh, the vast majority of casualties especially when it comes to the phalanx are taken when the panic sets in and the 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 route begins any idea of how many men died on either side oh i don't know if i made notes of that but it's definitely it's it's definitely a crushing defeat for antag uh, the antagonist antagonist the one eye his his army is routed demetrius has to flee to greece like he has like that's the last stronghold of antagonist support is in greece there, he has no more troops. He has no more manpower to draw on in Asia Minor. Like it is, it is done. Like the deed is done then and there. And Seleucid comes out on top. He walks in there like nothing. Like he he is now set up. There's no one to challenge him. Uh, Cassander and Lysimachus have to go back to Macedon and to uh, to Thrace. Like they're they're gone. Like they are completely out of there. It's it's an utter catastrophe. I think um, I think it was Plutarch or uh, Diodorus who said that um, Antigonus had like five thousand infantry and four thousand cavalry. So, as you were saying at the beginning, they had somewhere around eighty thousand, you know, between seventy-five thousand, eighty-five thousand men to start the battle. They end with like mm-hmm. nine thousand. Now, obviously. Yeah those numbers huge huge dump truck full of salt uh, in either direction yep. but if those are real uh i mean that's one of the most devastating bloody losses in history i mean you're oh, talking absolutely. the battle of the somme the bloodiest day in british history is 60,000 64,000 your your 10 20,000 more than that if these numbers are accurate uh I can't imagine how you would try and recoup or recover. And then, like you were just saying, Lycomachus uh, um, uh, and Cassander are back in Greece. They also suffered pretty heavily. So Seleucus is kind of sitting the prettiest of everyone. Yes. And what does that mean? And what's the impact of that long term? Is Seleucus kind of... Uh, a trans uh, transitional guy or is his line going to be around for a while they they do stick around for a few more hundred years like they are they are unchallenged in that area uh the romans and i want to say uh i think some them turkic peoples come in and start pushing him out like he is like uh, he comes out on top and the seleucid empire is it's pretty unchallenged for a few hundred years, but I, and once again, I'm not super familiar with that part of the Seleucid Empire, but I, I know that they eventually do fight against the Romans. Eventually their empire collapses and is replaced by a plethora of different empires in that yeah, region. I, interestingly in, enough, we have another um, echo of history here where at Magnesia, you have Hannibal uh, fighting Scipio's brother, Scipio Asiatica, I believe, in a battle where the cavalry on one side 
over pursues a defeated enemy and ends yeah. up giving the battle to the Romans uh, for kind of the same reason that the Seleucids had won the day at Ipsus. Um, Absolutely. At the if you could button the episode or button the battle of Ipsus uh, in a few phrase, you know, a few words or phrases. Why is it important? Why do you think it's um, historically something that people should kind of keep in mind? And to you on your, and I think this is interesting for everybody that's into military history, they have their own personal timeline of, of key moments and events. And some people are more of Civil War or World War II, and some people are more Rome and Greek, and they have that timeline. And these are the things they focus in on. Uh, give us an idea of why Ipsus is in your timeline and why it should be in everybody's timeline when they're considering not just the ancient world, but the the way the world is as a whole, how it plays out. Does it have a moment in there? Is it on that level or is it more of a, um, a regional? Would the world be the same if Ipsus didn't happen? I think if Ipsus didn't happen... I, be, I believe that Antigonus would have crushed uh, Lycomachus and Cassander. I think that Greece would have, Greece, Macedon would have been united under the Antigonid banner. But at the end of the day, I think Seleucus would have won anyway. Uh, really, Demetrius, as much as I appreciate his victories, had also some pretty significant losses as well. A bit of a hit and miss general. I don't think he had that spark of Alexander brilliance. I think a lot, uh, a lot of it was just he had he had the manpower and he had significant technology that he could dwell on and also the resources to draw on that he's able to bring out a lot of victories. Like they had tons of manpower, he got money resources i think that's a lot of what gave the antigonids a lot of it but then you have antigonus himself who was a much more competent general had some significant victories if he hadn't been 78 years old you know what i'd be more willing to bet on them hmm. but i just think that seleucus was the better commander and a little more clever and just had had that little bit more bit of brilliance that the others didn't and so i do think that one way or the other, Seleucid would have t had taken over that area, but it's just a matter of when and at what cost. Because if Antigon, if the Antigonids, like, I wouldn't see Antigonus himself living much longer after when Ipsus would have taken place. So it would have come down to his son Demetrius, who, while probably would have scored some good, some uh, significant victories, I don't think he would have had that same bit of tactical brilliance and Seleucid would have eventually overwhelmed him. But it would have been a lot bloodier if it had come down to that. I, I, you know, I don't have nearly as much understanding of the battle itself as you do, but I think it seems like the Seleucids were on that, that trajectory, no matter what yeah. kind of happened. And the fact that the Ptolemies were kind of just playing the you know, playing the fence and willing to go where the wind blows as long as they were safe. Um, it seemed to me, or it seems to me that, that uh, the Seleucids would have eventually just, just been able to um, swarm 
mm-hmm. uh, whatever the Antigonids would, would be able to put out there. Um, okay. The, I, uh, I really have enjoyed having you on, man. I think it's, I, I appreciate you dealing with me interjecting every five <laughs> seconds and derailing your train of thought and your timeline and probably, you know, uh, putting your notes to ashes because <laughs> I was all over the place, but it's just, I was too excited. I am excited to yeah. talk to someone who knows what they're talking about and, and dive into this kind of stuff. Um, so I appreciate your patience. No problem. I swear, sorry, Colin. Okay. I am, I'm going to interrupt you. This no, time. by all means do it. All <laughs> uh, time. I know like, I know I messed up some things cause there's a lot I missed out on and there's a few little things I, I, um, because I've never done something like this before. So this is definitely a little intimidating to go into, especially someone like yourself, who I respect so highly. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I, this is a lot of fun. And I, I hope your listeners don't come, come back and say, that guy's an idiot. I, no. I just, no, no, I, no, I had no. a lot of fun doing this. Here's the so. thing is if, if there are any factual errors, they are on me. It's like the author at the beginning of a book when they say any errors are mine and mine alone. They're me because I've put you on the spot in a terrible way. Uh, (laughs) I will take all the bullets here because uh, first off, you are going into this almost not blind, but like you don't know what the hell I'm going to say. So um, I totally take that on me. I think this was a blast. And to be entirely honest, I'd love to have you on. I'd like, I'd love to make this something of a, a regular thing because uh, for me to do four episodes and then also, you know, I, I just started with another show and then have my fishmonger job. It's a lot. So having a, sure. another episode in that we can work in where I've got somebody to talk to instead of the, you know, the fine foam padding and the mattress here <laughs> as my only partners in, in crime um would be a lot of fun but you and i can talk about that afterwards moving on before the very end brett i want to get back to whiskey tango podcast sure we can do that what do we have coming down the pipeline and if you could just sketch out who your partners are what they're like and why it's fun to uh listen to whiskey tango podcast okay we can definitely do that so to give a little more background uh Denzel is 27. I might be getting that wrong. He may have just turned 28. I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> I am. I'm 30. I just. Uh, I just turned 36 on Wednesday. So that uh, that that happened. And then D- Dave is 42. So we have a wide variety of opinions and outlooks on life because we're all at different stages in our life. So really, whenever we bring up a something like. I hate to say it because it's been done to death already, but the Will Smith thing, like we'll all, all three of us will have very different opinions on what that is, why it took place or uh, any kind of event, anything that you can think of under the sun. We have our own little opinion sometimes because I'm kind of partway between the group. I'm the kind of the middle child of it. So sometimes I'll agree with Dave. Sometimes I agree with Denzel. And sometimes I'll just not agree with either of them. It's just, we all have very different views on life and it just makes for a little more of an interesting listen. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, we've got a uh, couple of things like we, we get a chance to interview some famous comedians. Well, famous up here in Canada, like Rob Pugh or Kelly Taylor, like they're for us, they're, they're pretty significant. 
and then we're we actually have a contest where we're going to be going to Jay Farrow when he comes here. We're actually going to have, we might have, might fingers crossed have the chance to get him on the show or even like, even if we get a chance to just meet him yes. and have that yeah, little bit of uh, yeah. like, if we get that for our social media or something, that'd be huge for us. So that's, uh, that's kind of what's coming down the pike right now. We're also doing where we're, we want to do live episodes where we want people to like call in or just shout, stupid shit out and have uh, just basically a, a fun, ridiculous, just wild days. Like uh, our hundredth episode where, well, we're hoping um, at the 100th episode to have like a barbecue where Love people it. can just show up and have a, like just get involved. And yeah, we're just, we're very much just average guys talking stupid average shit. And that's that's what it comes down to. That's why I like it. It is super. <laughs> even though you guys are up Manitoba, yeah, you know, a world away from where I am, <laughs> but it's just a, a couple of friends just kind of dicking around, and in a way yeah. that is very accessible and entertaining. Um, is there anything on the show that you guys are advertising? Anything that you guys are trying to to spout out? Because um, you know, feel free to throw it out here and, and <laughs> do what you can to spread the word. Well, we are actually, we are, we're sponsored by Rumors Comedy Club, which is uh, our biggest, that's our kind of our house sponsor. Like that it's, it's the comedy club in Canada. You'll hear all the most famous comedians will talk about it. Like Burt Kreischer just recently brought it up on his show. Like it's, it's uh we're very blessed to have that yeah, to, sure. to have the crew have our back and have give us access to comedians that we never would have dreamed of a year ago. And we're also sponsored by a couple of uh, different types of uh, alcohol. Like we have um, like fireballs, one of like one of the ones that's kind of, you're going to start seeing some posts from fireball from us because they're, they're helping us out. And uh, like Buffalo Trace, we got a, like we got like shirts of theirs and all kinds of fun stuff. We're we're doing a March Madness thing right now where we're giving a bunch of swag away. Uh, unfortunately, it's only Manitobans right now. We're we're still pretty small, but we're trying to grow and uh, expand as much as we possibly can. Uh, yeah, so Buffalo Trace has been amazing. It's one of my favorite bourbons. Oh, it's, it's the best. I don't know if you. I know that yeah, um, a lot of you out there are whiskey guys and bourbon guys uh, or guys and gals. Um, and if you haven't had Buffalo Trace or Eagle uh, Rare, go out Ooh, and grab yeah. a bottle. Buffalo Trace is the best uh, on the shelf just to have in your back pocket bourbon. It beats Bullet by a mile. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's Long the, the flavor is so much more. Uh, layered intense but also uh, smooth and it also if you're gonna mix it it just ups whatever cocktail you are making by a thousand it is uh it's a Absolutely. great on the shelf bourbon so um whiskey tango podcast buffalo trace rumors comedy club uh mm -hmm. fireball obviously everybody fucking knows fireball so <laughs> that's no, no no need to build that up but yeah yeah. Check out Whiskey Tango Podcast on any app that you download podcasts on. Make sure that you uh, subscribe, rate, review, follow them on their social media. You guys are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 
Yeah. Uh, and again, that's Whiskey Tango Podcast. This has been Brett talking about Ipsis and Cullen, the host of Cauldron. And I'm going to do my best to get him back on the show. So if you liked it, let us know. And if you didn't, well, you'll just have to skip the next time he's on. All righty. Thank you guys <laughs> oh. very much. And uh, it's been great having you on. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again, man. Perfect. I, was, I had so much fun, Colin. Thank you very, very much for having me on.